Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so that you can really create those products that customers love and come back and buy more of. And I have a question for us. Would you be interested to know what startup founders with successful exits of up to $1.2 billion have in common? I know I would, because startup founders share many similarities with product managers and innovation people. Indeed, many founders also take on the responsibility of product manager for their business. Our guest, Michelle Duval, shares the first 20-year study of what successful entrepreneurs and business builders do and what they have in common. Further, the research has been applied to entrepreneurs, those everyday innovators and organizations who are striving to create more value for customers. The study is called Fingerprint for Success. Listen and learn what qualities are needed for your success. I think you're going to enjoy this. Also, Michelle will share an assessment that only takes a few minutes to complete to help you identify your key strengths. And remember, I take notes for you. If you want to share any important points of this discussion with your team, with your colleagues, with anyone else, that's a great way to do it. Just find the notes at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 229. Now, let's talk to Michelle. Michelle, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. I'm delighted to be here, Chad. Thank you. So a colleague connected us, and I am very happy to have that happen because you've done some really interesting research and some longstanding research. I really appreciate longitudinal research that's done over a long period of time. And there was something in your bio that really caught my attention. And I'll provide the context for this in just a moment. But in your bio, you said, and you started this in the late 1990s, you said, while coaching business owners, some already very successful and others struggling, I noticed that as we facilitated changes in their personal attitudes, something important happened their business's results changed too. In my experience with that, I joined this mastermind group late last year and expected it to be all about business. That was my goal. And we had this weekly mindset meeting, it was called Mindset, part of the mastermind. A doctor facilitated it for us, Dr. Nima, we call him. And frankly, in the beginning, it was very woo for me. It was just too (laughs) touchy-feely, like, why am I wasting my time for this? But I paid for this mastermind group, so I was all in. I'm like, okay, I'll give this a go. And it became my favorite thing, you know, from being a waste of time to, wow, I'm really shifting how I change about things. And I'm kind of showing up a little bit different at times with other people, professionally and personally. And I was amazed how much that flowed over into my business life. So I'm curious if you can just talk a little bit about, you know, what you discovered then in the late 1990s and kind of how that has flowed forward. Yeah, well, thank you, Chad. I, I had a really um, unusual opportunity. I created one of the very first coaching businesses in Australia and we created three different divisions. So corporate executive coaching, you know, contracts with banks and pharmaceutical, you know, large corporations and then personal coaching. So coaching individuals in their relationships, their career development and so on. And then I started working with what I call our creative artists. So actors, writers, producers, inventors and entrepreneurs. And for me, I ended up dedicating myself to that population of people because that group of people are the ones who are creating our futures. They're determining what, you know, what are the tools, anthropologically, what tools are we going to utilise, you know, the workspaces that we work in, they really influence, you know, our future, our entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, the things that is basically going to determine 
what we use and how we live in the future. And because I was, you know, working with such a dominant um, group of people like that, I had this really unique experience of sitting with some of the genuinely world's most successful you know, movie producers, entrepreneurs, creative artists, and then several people who were like literally failing. They couldn't raise money. They couldn't get their product to market. They couldn't um, get someone to read their script or whatever it was that they were working on. And because I'd done so many years of working with corporate executives, I had this contrast between the two. And for every single client that we bring into our coaching firm, we would go through an inventory of their cognitive styles, their attitudes at work. And so we had in our filing cabinet, we had 15 years worth of this inventory for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients. And as I was sitting with these creative artists, I was like, wow, they have really, really different attitudes and particularly from those who are successful than those who are failing. Hmm. And so we had a hypothesis that attitude has an impact on how commercially successful something is. That's a pretty important hypothesis. And that must have led to resolving this hypothesis in some way, right? So what did you do about that? So with all of the qualitative data that we went through, we decided we wanted to quantify that. So we created a a quantitative study. We took a university in the UK. We took a a professor of psychology from a very esteemed university here in Sydney. And we created a two-year project where we took a, a sample of extremely successful people who had started a business and sold that business within a five-year period. And then people who had grown businesses, so leaders inside businesses had grown businesses over a 10 to 15-year period with the hypothesis, and it was a world-first study, that attitude impacts, you know, business outcomes. Uh And what we found was significant correlations between attitude and business outcomes. And so we, we took that findings and said, okay, So what, does it make any difference if people know this about themselves? So we spent uh, four and a half years applying the findings to over a 1,000 different case studies of business owners to see did it make any difference and it had a genuinely huge impact. Hmm. And so that's that's how we did it. That's really powerful. I really do think how we think about any aspect of our life impacts how we show up. And I was just listening to another podcast this morning and a person was sharing that he had contacted 20 of his uh, business associates and asked them, if you could only define customer with one word, what would it be? And he said 18 of them said something that was transactionally oriented, right? You know, pay, money, profit, something that was transactional. Only two of them said something that was more foundational, like lifeblood, you know, serve, right? This notion of the customer being important to the organization in a more foundational way. And then he said, you know, those two people that responded that way, both of them, their net worth is 10 times greater more than 10 times greater than everyone else put together. Yeah. And I think it just changes how we kind of show up and how we think about things actually. So yeah. I'm assuming because your website is fingerprint for success and you have this fingerprint for success system, that that research flowed into this system, fingerprint for success. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. What is that thing? Yeah. So the people that we studied, to give you an idea of their level of success, who were successful, they had multi-billion IPOs. They had sold their businesses for the products that they had developed for between um, $6 million and $1.2 billion. And so most of them had an exit in the hundreds, 200, 400 million. And so the platform um, has three different engines. So we basically commercialized the research so that everybody in the world could access it. So there's an engine that measures 48 different attitudes at work. 
and then the platform benchmarks people against that success group. So we call those success factor models. So you can find out what are your innovative entrepreneurial talents and where do you have innovative entrepreneurial attitudinal blind spots. So we like the metaphor of driving in a car. Um, you know, when you're on the freeway, you want to change lanes and there's that part where optically your nerves cannot actually see the blind spot. So you have to turn your head to have a look, um, otherwise you're going to crash. Uh-huh. And so the same is true that true that we have attitudinal biases and we have such strong biases that there's certain aspects that we don't know what we're not paying attention to. Right. And so um, the platform helps you to illuminate what those are and then we help you to develop those blind spots or manage them at least. So let me make sure I got this right. So you studied the attitudes of very successful entrepreneurs that had exits of the order of six million to one point two billion. So people yeah. who at least we have a metric for what success means that they, yeah. they made that happen. And then you identified the attitudes that were consistent with that group. And then you have a mechanism to look at forty eight attitudes for anyone aligned to the workplace and say, Okay, how do yeah. you match up? Right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Is the 48 present in the successful exit? Because that's Not a lot. Not necessarily. So we found, we, found, okay. um, seven, we found 7 to 11 that were critical. Okay. So there's a subset of what most people have that make the difference. Okay. Yeah. I want to yeah. find out more about what that is. First, <laughs> let me just frame this a little bit. Everyday innovators that are listening, most of them are in medium to large enterprises working in some kind of product capacity. There are people in startups that listen to, and there's people that are interested in getting into this space. But let's just kind of address that enterprise environment for a moment. How does Fingerprint for Success apply to them? Yeah, so currently how people utilize it in um, enterprise is to be able to map an innovative culture. So we're able to, because attitude, you see, makes up your culture. Hmm. And rather than just saying, you know, our culture is this, we can actually quantify attitudinally what the company culture is. So we can look at the whole entire company or we can look at a team or look at an individual and help you to identify what are your innovative talents, what are your entrepreneurial talents, and importantly, where do you have innovative or commercial blind spots? So you can then say, okay, and this is the distinction around managing the blind spots, is that if you realise, and here's some of the key information that we found, is that um, successfully highly creative people who can commercialise that creativity they have a very high focus on what we call big picture thinking. So they are motivated to get the overview and they don't need a lot of detail um, to be able to uh, make decisions, for example. We also found that they are really motivated to invent novel ways of how to complete a task versus a motivation or an attitude for following step-by-step procedures. Now, we all know in an enterprise environment that replication and quality and being able to replicate that quality through a procedure is critical. But in that innovative um, phase of birthing a new product mm-hmm. um, and getting that to market, we don't we, we, having a procedure is not going to necessarily help us for that. So um, this is when we're embracing things that are groundbreaking that have never been done before. So we can actually measure how much someone's motivated for procedures um, in contrast to the local U.S. population, for example. Huh. So you can see exactly how much from the U.S. population of, across the working population and also against the world's most successful innovators. And so you can discover, oh, my gosh, I'm so focused on procedures, which is going to help us post the product um, creation phase, and that's going to help us to commercialise it to the market. But in that creation phase, it's going to actually hold us back. So we can help to identify that and then help to ensure that we're dealing with that. Now, 
we recommend that you find a creative partner who actually manages your blind spots. Mm -hmm. And if it's a role that you want to be in, we then encourage you to actually work on having more flexibility in your attitudes. Right. Yeah, because we all can grow in different areas, but finding that partner or partners that compensate for our weaknesses is really important. I'm a big fan of playing to our strengths and you find other people to help you where you're not strong. Yeah. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher performing product team meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Okay, so the Fingerprint for Success originally created out of that research of entrepreneurs, of startup founders, and identified yeah. 48 work attitudes and then a core set of yeah. those that were aligned with them. And then for the enterprise, you're using the tool to really assessing the culture and what kind yeah. of stands out in those people in those innovation roles. Is it also yeah. the same 48 work attitudes or did you find other things yeah. in the enterprise? Yeah, so we use all the 48 attitudes and people use it for innovation, but they also use it for being able to create teams. So looking at how they collaborate different motivations that a team needs so that they can team really quickly mm-hmm. um, in lots of product environments as as you well know and everyone listening is that often teams come together and then they reorganize for another product or something else that they're working on depending mm-hmm. upon how the organization is you know structured right. and so being able to team quickly and figure out who has the attitudes that we need in the team and at what stage in the process do they have the talents um, because that's the thing talents are context dependent So we often think that a talent is I've just got this talent and in every context it's going to be a talent. But for my example, for me, um, with my background and and being a thought leader in the space of coaching, I'm very high on what we measure is external reference. I want the people I'm coaching to author their own decisions Mm -hmm. um, versus being very strong on internal reference. Now, as a professional coach, that's a genuine talent and strength for me. But in for me being now a technology startup founder and a product manager myself, um, my um, external reference is too much. It's not a talent in that environment. Uh-huh. So I have to consciously, constantly challenge that, manage that, and surround myself with the right people to support that. That's really good. So the space here of identifying kind of what your strengths are, what your natural abilities are in different areas, and then being reflective on which context those kind of shine in or where you need more compensation and think more deeply. Yeah. Okay, that's good. So this applies to the enterprise, certainly. Just to make that connection kind of with where you got started with the startup founders, as everyday innovators, every time I ask someone in product management why they got into product management, you know, somewhere near the top of the list is some notion of entrepreneurial thinking. You know, I wanted to be part of a bigger picture in the organization. I wanted to build something new. Um, They they express an entrepreneurial kind of mindset. And so a lot of us have that kind of spirit in us as product people. 
let's talk about those characteristics that you identified. What really came up as those key characteristics for those successful entrepreneurs? Two key ones that were most critical. And, and just to highlight, we did a, a, a second study in 2018 where we um, looked at founders globally around 55 different cities, um, so thousands and thousands of sound founders. And we were looking at does culture make any impact and um, we found that culture itself didn't impact entrepreneurial thinking, that it was pretty consistent all yeah. around the world, which was a really important finding. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we found was is that initiation is a critical, critical ingredient. So initiation is, is how quickly do you turn your ideas into steps and actions And how long do you like to take and pause and reflect before you take action? And in terms of commercial success, what we found was initiation was um, 44% higher than the rest of the working population to be able to um, be successful as a founder, um, an entrepreneur. And we also found that they have very low reflection of patience. So what it means is um, rapidly turning your ideas and taking the very first step. So it might be having to initiate a conversation with someone, sending an email, calling a product meeting, mm-hmm. um, making all of those distinctions that allows people to um, take the very first step. So there's what we call a high level of self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is the belief that if I take the first step, I can learn and figure out what the next step is, even though I can't see it when right. I take the first step. Yeah, you don't know what that map is, right? The roadmap for where you're going yet. But you know, if you take action, you'll learn something new and you'll figure it out yeah. from there. Which yeah. is scary for a lot of people because you're moving into the unknown. Exactly. And you've got to have that high self-efficacy. A second finding was, um, as I said before, was this super big picture orientation. So this helps the, the innovator or the founder to be able to identify what are the most important priorities right now. Um, so when we have a really high focus on detail, it helps us to polish things off, to perfect things, make them perfect. And when someone's um, attempting to ship something that's brand new, they're wanting to, you know, in an agile environment to make a minimum viable product, um, the goal here is is to figure out what's most important, get that to market as quickly as they can, and then make it shiny and perfect it later. And this is what the a key distinction was in those who were commercially successful because the distinction between enterprise and someone in a startup environment is the startup environment has to meet milestones to be able to raise the next rounds of funding. Right. And um, in an enterprise environment, there's a often, you know, a lot more money um, and there's sometimes, not always, more room to move in terms of the milestones. Mm-hmm. So that really is a critical distinction between the two. Um, and we'll see always in, a, in an enterprise environment, the most entrepreneurial people will have that those same traits. Those same motivations. A third critical finding we found um, that's critical in the most innovative product orientated founders that we studied was what we call a motivation or an attitude for indifference. So we measure how motivated are you to follow rules and who should set the rules and how comfortable are you to think outside the rules that have been set. And the most innovative, most disruptive product founders that we found and studied. Um, have a very high level of indifference where if you make a request to them, they don't feel compelled to follow it. They mm-hmm. don't see it as a rule. They don't see industry's rules. And as an unconscious bias, this means they're constantly just not limited or constricted by the norms that everybody else is seeing in that environment. Right. And when we're inside an enterprise environment, um, 
we are conditioned in those environments to follow the company rules, to play and scribble and draw and colour inside those rules. And we think that the environment of innovation has to exist inside of that box, whereas the most innovative, most disruptive people that we studied literally do not see a box. They're not Uh constrained. Um, And they are able to think of and see things that, and they're so creative because they're not playing in the same pen. Yeah, it really goes to how we frame the problem as well, because if you're not constrained to any box to the rules, you're going to frame the problem in probably a way that leads you to more innovative solutions also. Good. I appreciate that. Some of us are wired to be rule followers and some of us aren't. And one of the Steve Jobs quotes that I like so much that kind of when I first heard it gave me permission to break rules was, you know, the people that made the rules that you're following now are no smarter than you are, right? It's just, why do we think that those rules are good? Maybe that's okay to push on. I was curious, too, when you talked about identifying the highest priorities and what's important, the contrast between the startup environment where you have to really push forward because you're at risk of not having funding and runway to continue, and the enterprise environment where, you know, maybe the milestones, the deadlines aren't quite as real because you can find more funding if you're moving in the right direction. In the enterprise, we have these barriers in place that make life more challenging for us. You know, in the startup, we can just go try something. There's no one that's going to slap our hand because we're just trying, you know, figuring out what's going to work. In the enterprise, there's usually some mechanisms already built in the structure and the culture that says, oh, there's some things you can't try. You know, you don't take those kinds of risks. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things we found in the startup founders and those innovators was they have a high internal reference. Hmm. So they have a strong internal criteria. They feel comfortable to follow their own criteria and they have a very low motivation for external reference. In an an enterprise environment, external reference is my leader, my boss, the um, research, the data, the customer, et cetera. And um, what we found in our startup founders is that even if there are mechanisms and other things around them that are telling them that you shouldn't do that, if they have the internal conviction, um, they will follow that anyway. Mm. And when we look at the most disruptive intrapreneurs, they're the same way. They're wired that way. Mm. They, they, they ask for forgiveness rather than for permission. Right. And, and so they'll go and do a secret experiment or they will go and do a small test case to validate an idea. And that's a critical ingredient that we found in our early stage startup founders as well is, is that they don't put all the money on red. They do small iterative experiments mm-hmm. and that's what the funding process forces you to have to do. Right. Um, and so they, they don't bet it all on red. And so that's what enterprise um, entrepreneurs and, you know, really innovative product managers can, do, can follow as well is that experimental iterative, um, I'm experimenting. That's what the initiation does. So the initiation says, we don't have all the answers. We're happy to fail. Let's just take a small step. Let's just take that right. small step. Um, and that means that we're inventing it together as we go. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yes, that's that's one of the ways. And also that indifference. Remember that I was talking about the mm-hmm. indifference? I'm not constrained by the rules. So the most creative indifferent people won't always work well in an enterprise. So if you're listening and you're like, I don't fit, I'm constantly bumping up against all of this, you're most likely have that really strong indifference. And you probably don't think you're doing anything wrong by your company culture, but you are not following the rules. You're breaking the rules and people are looking at you and saying, why do you keep doing that? And you're like, what? I didn't do anything. Yeah. And you genuinely don't think you broke a rule. Yeah. It's not fitting issues really real for some of us inside organizations where we are that square peg trying to go into the round hole and we're not like those around us. And I interviewed one serial innovator who was at Caterpillar 
And he was there for 23 years, you know, fighting the cultural barriers around him until his boss finally said they attended a workshop where a product manager that does research was talking about what a serial entrepreneur actually is. And his boss finally said, oh, now I understand why you are the way you are, right? And knowing how to use these people is really important for leaders of organizations. Exactly. And so for those of you listening on who are in an organization and you want to really develop and cultivate more entrepreneurial, innovative talent in your teams, um, it really is looking for and spotting these things that are different and atypical to your environment and being able to foster it, encourage it, recognize it, validate it. So that's the biggest way to change an attitude and a motivation Mm -hmm. is that as we add more meaning to it. So if I, for example, Um, when I was a coach, being externally referenced was most important. But in my startup and being more innovative and trusting my own internal innovation, I'm really focused on right now trusting more of my internal reference. And so as I add more meanings to why that commercially supports my business, why I'll be more successful, I start to have more motivation for that motivation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you're recognizing it and validating it and calling it out in a group and people realize that's a currency in the organization, they can start to move towards it and we're not turning it down. We're not turning it off. We're actually amplifying. Right. One of my favorite tools as a product manager for doing that inside an organization is to literally bring in the voice of the customer. If I can't get support for what's going on, right, um, people aren't aligned with what I believe we need to do. And hopefully what I believe we need to do is aligned with what I've heard from the customer is get the customer to share the story themselves. Yeah. And that's a way of amplifying and adding meaning to why something might be yeah. important. So yeah. You've shared some good attitudes there that we went through. We don't have time to go through all the core ones in your research, and hopefully we can provide listeners some resources for that later. We've alluded to this a little bit, but I wanted to talk more about if you don't have these, right? So say you're not good at initiating. You're not good at taking that first step and seeing what's coming next and being confident about that. What do you do about this? Yeah. So... There are blind spots that we manage and then there's blind spots that we cultivate and develop. The ones that we manage are ones which are extremely, going to be extremely, extremely difficult to change. And so we take a very uh, strength-based approach in our methodologies and that's what the technology platform does as well. So we say, when because here's the thing, your attitudes and motivations at work determine where you get fulfillment, mm. satisfaction, happiness, and you get enjoyment. And the big thing we know today, as all of our millennials keep telling us, is that millennials will walk if they're not enjoying their work. So our goal is to create a fit between my natural drivers, my natural motivations and the role that I do, and I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be fulfilled, and then let's challenge you to grow. Mm-hmm. So that's the first the first concept is go and find a place where you can be naturally aligned with your motivations, which might, if you're in innovation and you have some that are missing, it might be in the in the scaling innovation stage, yeah. you know? Like I'll you give you an example. It. So, you know, the way I'm wired, I am, and this is kind of a characteristic of how I define everyday innovators, right? People who listen to this. We look around and we see the world as a set of problems waiting for solutions, right? So all the time we're looking at things like, oh, I can make that better. I can solve that problem. There's a product or service that we could do for that. And that comes naturally to me. And then I don't know what part of my brain it is, right, on Myers-Briggs or wherever it sits, but the risk side of me quickly kicks in and says, oh, but here's the things that could go wrong. And that's really important for a team to have that capability, but it's also what limits me personally from wanting to take that next step. 
right? And so I know yeah. I need to partner with other people. Yeah, exactly. Is that fit, fitting what you're talking about? That, that's exactly. We actually measure that risk problem orientation and then your focus on problems. We measure exactly that. And we also measure the opposite to that, which is that goal orientation and that balance mm-hmm. between the two. And so it's exactly that. So when we're going to manage a blind spot, we'll partner with somebody who can manage that blind spot and contribute to the project and the team what we don't have. Simple. Find somebody else who has that missing attitude and leadership lens and bring them into the project. Then focus on one or two that you may want to develop and then work on actually developing them. And the best way to develop them is to identify someone who is a model exemplar of the attitude you want to model. So if it is initiation, Um, Find someone who can take the first step with no data, no permission. They'll just take that first step, even when they don't know what's going to happen next. And sit down, take them for a coffee, ask them, how do you do that? What are you thinking? What permission have you got? How do you do that? And um, that's what we call modelling. So step one is to model. Step two is to then say, okay, why is this attitude important in product development or if I am an entrepreneur listening in, in, in starting up a business and why is it important and start to find references that give you more meaning for that motivation. You're going to start to get more motivation for it and motivation leads to being able to increase the skills. But if you don't have a motivation for it and you're trying to change your skills, you're going to have real difficulties if you don't have the motivation. Yeah, it's going to feel forced upon you. As we said before, the attitudes that we have at work is influences where we find enjoyment, and we need yeah. that motivation to align with that. And often, it's mm-hmm. I really like that you shared, you know, find a person that is good at that thing that you need on the team, and you can learn from them. And often, something comes up in, in experiences I've had, they just think about things a little bit differently. That's an easy yeah. thing to adopt. It's like, oh, I never thought about the situation that way. You switch my paradigm a little bit, right? Just yeah. by rethinking yeah. the attitudes involved. So. Okay, this is all really powerful. I'm curious how this fits in with other tools because I'm getting this frame from this that I could use this with a team and start assessing yeah. where are we, where are our strengths, where do we need to kind of fill in a little bit. And there's other tools that do that for us too, right? In different contexts, right? So Myers-Briggs is a standard one. There's DISC. There's a growing number yeah. of tools available. Position this a little bit for why people would select fingerprints for success. Yeah. So when you look at something like a Myers-Briggs, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a personality um, inventory and um, DISC is also measuring personality. So those tools there that you just mentioned are looking at you as a personality type, which is interesting and it has use because you understand the differences of team members. What we're measuring in fingerprint for success is your attitudes and motivations at work. So what you pay attention to, what gives you fulfillment, what is your passions and what is your drivers. And because we've done the research, you're able to then use the benchmarks to find out your innovative attitudinal talents. Because what we know in the future of work is, is we're all concerned and nervous about, you know, jobs being replaced by automation. Um, you know, the robots are coming and all of those fears that most people have. But the most transferable thing we have in the future is our attitude and so we're going to always have to develop new skills we're always going to have to develop more experience but our attitude is our secret source it's your unique way you do your skills it's your talent right and so having that understanding about yourself and others allows you to bring out the best in yourself and bring out the best at others and to be able to be really high-performing individual and a high-performing team. Mm-hmm. And what we know about product management in any startup or, um, you know, large enterprise environment is that we have to move quickly. 
And we have to be able to collaborate with people virtually. We have to collaborate with people who are very, very different to us in that in that creative product product process and then, you know, integrating it all. And we wanna we wanna bring out the best in each other. We want to enjoy what we do. So yeah. This is really good. So I want to find out more about how we can do this for ourselves. But just so I don't forget, I love innovation quotes. Let me ask you that first, and then we'll find out where we can get resources. So what's an innovation quote you brought for us, and why did you choose that one? Well, I've got so many quotes I could share, but one of my favorite ones is Albert Einstein and his good old quote, which is, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. And tell us more. Why does that one stand out for you? Well, as a coach for you know 22 years and working with people who are genuinely creating and changing our world, what I've learned and seen time and time again is, is they have an agile mind uh-huh. that says, what got me here is not the thinking that's going to get me to the next level. And when we're stuck inside of our problems, the reason why coaching is so helpful and effective is it helps you to step out of the problem. Uh and to see the problem from a different perspective and discover new resources inside of yourself or your team. And then with that perspective, you're able to um, invent new things to solve whatever it is. So I think it's pertinent to the creative process. I think it's pertinent to the human development process. And when we look at product development and innovation in the world, we are capped by what we can think of and develop as a human so far. Uh And all of the greatest leaps in innovation come from leaps in our thinking. And, um, you know, I've had the privilege of doing that as a coach with so many incredible people, and I think that we can all learn from that. Yeah, I really like that. Lately, I've been working on expanding the gap. So Viktor Frankl talks about, you know, things that trigger us and then our response to that, whether that's a problem or an interaction or whatever it is, right? Sometimes this shows up in my family, frankly, with certain kids <laughs> in my family, and something will happen and trigger a certain, certain way, and I'm trying to expand that gap between the trigger event and my response so I can be more thoughtful and know that I can maybe think in a new way to help you know, resolve that more appropriately. And I think those kinds of attitudes are really powerful for us. A lot of us, this is attitude work, that if we know we can solve problems once we get into them and understand them better, that's much more enabling than just kind of fearing the unknown. Yeah, so 100%. Thanks for sharing Einstein's quote. I love Einstein. He has so many good quotes for us. Okay, resources. So I am sure people want to dive into, I certainly do, dive into a deeper understanding of what these attitudes are. How can we find out more about your study, more about that work, and be able to dive into this? Yeah, so uh, our website is Fingerprint for Success, or we have another um, website called F, and then the number 4S for sugar.com. Um, so f4s.com and we've got you know lots and lots of blogs on there that relate to innovation entrepreneurial mindset um, and it's that application to being commercially successful and um, you can actually use the product so we're very soon going to be releasing a freemium a free product so that everybody can use f4s for free perfect um, that's coming out soon and um and if you, if you want to just get started straight away it doesn't cost very much to get started right now anyway so anyone can use it Excellent. I'm glad to know about that. Look forward to people trying the free resource. You know, I appreciate sites who have done that, you know, with versions of like Myers Briggs. So you can kind of get an idea of just where this is going and then you can dive in deeper if you want. So that's really good. I will make sure those links are in the show notes, fingerprints for success and f4s.com. And people can find those and it's easy to get to. Michelle, this is really fascinating work. I am always interested in how we can analyze what makes either an individual or a team work better when it comes to innovation work and product management sort of work that we do. 
And this is a really useful resource I'm looking forward to diving into further. Michelle, thanks for the time. And thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product master. And you know what that means. Here, you find practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence, so you'll create products customers love. Find the notes of that great discussion with Michelle and the insights in what we need to be to be really good entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 229. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.